Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a blessing today as through special music and congregational music, we are again reminded of Colossians 2.10, we are complete in Christ. How wonderful it is to know who we are, and not because we have discovered who we are in ourselves, but because we have discovered who we are in Christ. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. We'll begin in verse 13 this morning and go through verse 25. We're going to actually be looking at uh, uh, several things. We're going to look at a difficult journey, and then we're going to be looking at the first half of Paul's first recorded message uh, in the Scriptures. And there's some things here I trust that will be helpful for you this morning as a believer. And again, already we have heard the gospel throughout our music service, and I trust the Spirit of God has been using that in your heart. If you're a believer, to affirm and that you are your identity in Him and that you are His child and that He wants you to be a loyal follower of His. But also, if you are not sure or you've never received Christ, that the Holy Spirit, through the message of the music, has already been speaking to your heart and that the Spirit of God, through the preaching of the Word, will continue that so that you will be drawn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For He is the way, the truth, and the life. John fourteen six, And He said, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You cannot be reconciled to God. You cannot spend eternity with Him unless you come to faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, let's look at verses 13 and 14 as we begin and look at this difficult journey. In verse 13, the Bible says, Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Phrygia in Pamphylia, and John, or John Mark, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and sat down. Now, let's talk about this. Uh, there, there are several things that make this a difficult thing. First is there is a, a transition in leadership. And transition is really difficult. All through the book of Acts so far, we have seen Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, and now all of a sudden we see Paul and his company. Barnabas isn't even mentioned, though we know he was part of that team. And so there was a difficulty there, I'm sure, in that transition as now uh, Barnabas is kind of backing off of the leadership and he is supporting uh, Paul. Paul, called by God, clearly this is already recorded earlier in Acts, is called to be the, 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 the apostle to the Gentiles. And he is taking on that role of leadership. So that, that would have been a difficult thing for him as well. And, and now he is responsible for this company, this group uh, of fellow ministers that are with him serving God. And so that was part of what was, was going to be difficult was this, this transition. Uh, now, Paul, and isn't it amazing how God, through our, our life experience and our backgrounds and our giftings, how God fits us for the calling or the ministry that he has for us. Remember that Paul was from Tarsus, okay? So he would have grown up around Hellenistic Jews, those who had been heavily influenced by Greek culture. Yet we know that he grew up under the teaching of Gamaliel as a Pharisee, and so he would have been under the Hebraic uh, philosophy and mindset and culture of the Jews in Judea and at Jerusalem. 
So he has the Hellenistic aspect. He has uh, and understood that the, the Hellenistic Jewish mind, because remember that his pattern was throughout his missionary journeys, that if there was a synagogue at that city, he would go to the synagogue first and begin to proclaim Christ. But he also understood the Hebraic uh, mindset, especially as we see through some of his epistles that he writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, delineating these truths so that his brethren of Israel could understand and turn to Christ as Messiah. He was also a Roman citizen. He was born free. And so with that came rights and privileges, but also there were things as a Roman citizen that he would have understood And he would have understood some of that mindset and culture, even with a Jewish background. He was an incredibly intelligent, scholarly kind of a man. And so we see how God equipped him as the apostle to the Gentiles. God prepared him for this life mission and Barnabas supported this change. But Barnabas had to kind of step down so that Paul could step up. The second thing was it was a tough trip. It was was 160 miles when they loosed from Paphos. It was, uh, they, they would sail around to a port. The closest port would have been Italian. It was a 160-mile uh, trip by boat. And these were not cruise liners, okay? Uh, these weren't even comfortable ferries. The, these were ancient vessels. It would not have been a comfortable journey. And, not, and then after that, then they get on another boat from Italia, and they sail 12 miles upriver uh, till they get to Perga, um, and then, then from there, they have a 130-mile trip from Antioch to Pisidia. Now, Perga was, uh, was a very important city in that region, but it was kind of on a, on a very low level as far as um, altitude and below sea level and all of that. It was a very swampy, uh, kind of a disease-surrounded place. And many Bible scholars believe that the Apostle Paul got malaria or something like that. And so they're heading up to uh, Antioch of Pisidia, a different Antioch in a different region. And it's actually about 3,600 foot elevation through the Taurus Mountains. So they were very dangerous, rugged mountains. There were a lot of steep climbs. Uh, he's very sick. Um, as he's headed up there um, in Galatians chapter 3, um, he, he talks about to the Galatians. And, and when he was with them, he said, you would even have given your very eyes for me if you could. Because uh, we believe that maybe the malaria or whatever it was that, that, that caused him to be ill uh, before he came up there to Antioch affected his eyesight in a permanent way. And so he talks about them and he talks about, you know, the, the physical struggle that I had in the suffering. And that's found in Galatians uh, chapter four, verses 13 to 15. And that I had that struggle and you would have given your own eyes for me. And so it was difficult because there was a trial. It was a difficult, it was a difficult uh, trip. It was a difficult journey uh, and compounded by the trials of, of Paul being intensely sick. And here he's supposed to be leading these guys and these guys are helping him. Uh, but I like what, what another preacher said. He said, man, if I'm going to be sick and have to climb through the Taurus Mountains and get to do ministry, I want somebody like Barnabas, the son of consolation and encourager. They're helping me along, encouraging me, praying with me and helping me on this trip. But I think one of the other trials that was so difficult, we find here when it says that John Mark deserts them for home. Now, why? Well, it, it simply could have been he was, he was homesick. Remember that. Um, his mother's home there um, in, in Jerusalem was was a large enough home for the church to meet there. Um, there were servants. I remember Rhoda is the one who went to greet Peter at the door when he knocked on the door, not realizing it was him at first. 
Uh, and so it was large enough. So he, he came from a nice uh, home and nice background. This trip had been really rough. Maybe he was just homesick. Uh, some theorized that maybe because he was Barnabas's cousin, he disagreed with the change in leadership. And he thought, you're taking advantage. You know, my, my cousin Barnabas, he is the son of consolation. He is an encourager. And you're taking advantage of that. And, 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 and you are now taking over a ministry that he's led for so long. And so maybe he just disagreed with the change in leadership. But I think, the, and, and this is the third possibility, the, thing, the one that I think is probably most likely is he begins to realize this is going to be a difficult journey. This is going to be a dangerous journey. Going through the Taurus Mountains, the way that they had to go from Perga up to Antioch of Pisidia was, was a long 130 miles or so dangerous, steep mountain, rugged path, full of gangs of robbers and thieves. And I think because of that danger and other things, he decides to turn home. And you know, on a dangerous mission in a difficult way when you are already struggling to have somebody that is part of your team to just abandon you can be a great trial. And, and I believe that all of these things waited on him. You know, many times when we serve the Lord, and I'm not, I don't want to paint a bleak picture because it is so wonderful and so fulfilling and God always gives his grace and his strength along the way. When you look at Paul's tone of his letters, though he is very transparent about the times that were difficult and they faced spiritual battles and he suffered physical ailments and, and they faced persecution and he's beaten and in jail, even through all those things, though he's very transparent about the suffering, he is also very transparent about the fact that he was rejoicing in the, the faithfulness of God and, and how he was looking forward to someday with Christ, celebrating Christ's faithfulness. And he counted it a privilege to serve the Lord and be counted, uh, counted it an honor to, to be worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. So this is a tough trip, though. It's a difficult journey. And as they reach there, we, we realize in verse 14, it almost sounds like they just end a 130-mile journey and all these difficulties, and Paul's still getting over malaria. Now, I mean, the next day, here he is in the, in the synagogue on the Sabbath preaching. And the text doesn't necessarily forces to come to that conclusion. Um, it very likely was that, that Paul and his company um, had some time, could have been even several weeks, but I don't think it would have been that long. I think as soon as, as soon as Paul was feeling strong enough to be able to get uh, to the, the synagogue and begin to preach Christ, he had that urgent burden that was the purpose for which he was there and he was ready. Uh, there have been times um, when uh, I know I've been really sick and done everything I could because I wanted to get up and preach the word of God. And even through sickness and even through, I mean, there, were, there was a time when I was preaching in Nebraska and, and I had been so sick with the flu that I got up that night and, and I had to whisper into the microphone. And I warned the people, I said, now folks, I've been sick all day and they've got that door over there open for me and there's a bathroom just the other side of that door. And I might have to excuse myself in the middle of my message. The song leader may have to come up and lead a song while I'm in there. But as soon as I can get back and finish this message, I will. But you know what? God gave me the grace to be able to finish that. So I understand Paul's heart that no matter how sick he was, as soon as he was well enough, even though weak and still not completely recovered, to have the opportunity to preach the word of God and to share Christ, that he wanted to do that. Uh, so I don't think it was that long. Uh, because I believe that he had that heart and that burden. It shows through in the record of his ministry. 
let's look at, at Paul's first recorded message. We're going to read down from verse 15 to verse 25, and then we'll go back and we'll break it down. Look with me, read along in verse 15. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm brought he them out of it. And about that time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they desired a king and God gave unto them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised him up unto, unto them, David, to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus Christ. When John, this is John the Baptist, had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. This is the first half of Paul's message. Uh, now, next week on Sunday morning, I'll not be preaching because... John, or excuse me, Mark uh, Herbster will be here and Mark will be preaching our morning service. So we'll continue this in two weeks unless Christ comes in the rapture. And that would be even better. All right. Well, Lord willing, if the Lord tarries is coming in a couple of weeks, then we'll get to the other half uh, of, Paul, of Paul's message here in Acts chapter 13. But I want you to see that Paul stands with authority he beckons with his hand this was something common of the rabbis to do it indicated that the people were to get quiet and he is about to address them and so they recognized paul and barnabas as teachers paul stands up now in jerusalem the rabbis and in that region in judea it was understood that the rabbi would sit and his followers would either stand or sit around him at whatever his pleasure was but Paul also understood the culture of the Hellenistic Jews and those outside of that region. And so he understood that there it was the opposite, that the people would sit and the rabbi, whoever was teaching, expounding the word of God, would stand up. So he does that. He beckons with his hand. So he acknowledges that he is a legitimate proclaimer or teacher of the word of God, beckoning with his hand. Preaching, someone has said, is a one-way declaration, authoritative declaration of thus saith the Lord. And Paul was not afraid to do so. Paul knows his audience. Look how he addresses them, if you would. He says in verse 16, Paul stood up, begging with his hand, said, Men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. So, men of Israel, he knew that these, these are Israelites by, by heritage, by culture, even though they were Hellenistic Jews, they knew the scriptures, they met in synagogue, they studied the Hebrew scriptures. 
But he also said, ye that fear God. Who were those? Those were people like Cornelius. There was a specific designation for Gentiles who highly regarded and respected Judaism that had set aside an idea of polytheistic worship, worshiping many gods, and had come to believe in the one true God, Jehovah. They were not full-fledged proselytes. They're not completely converted to Judaism yet, yet they feared God. They wanted to listen to the scripture. They were interested in spiritual truth. These were God-fearers. And so Paul knows his audience, the Jews and these Gentile God-fearers that are there, and he calls them to attention. He starts with the Old Testament Israel's history, knowing that these people would understand that. This would have been something very familiar to them. Now, when he preaches later on at Mars Hill in Athens, he doesn't begin anything like this. Why? Because the Greeks, those Gentiles in Athens, didn't have that kind, that same kind of religious background. So he starts all the way back at creation and works his way through. And we'll talk about that uh, when we get to it later on in our series, Lord willing. But Paul begins by tracing Israel's history and he traces God's sovereign preparation for the coming of Messiah. Now, he doesn't come right out when he stands up and they say to him, Brother Rabbi, uh, if you have a word, say on. And, and Paul doesn't get up and say, all right, y'all, I'm here to preach Jesus. It doesn't start that way, right? He starts by, because Jesus is Messiah, amen? He is the promised one. He is the Son of God foretold in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of those promises. So Paul starts on familiar or common ground of their religious or spiritual understanding. And he talks about God's divine sovereignty in preparing Messiah because Jesus Christ is God the Father's sovereign choice. And Jesus Christ is the only Savior by that choice. And so he needs to show this and set this foundation for these God-fearing Gentiles and for these Jews who were coming to synagogue to hear the word. He starts by saying God chose his people Israel. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, God says to the nation of Israel, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because ye were more in number than any people. You are not a great nation. You are not a mighty nation. That's not why God chose you. By the way, God doesn't choose you or me based upon our lineage, our heritage, our intellect, our skills, our abilities, our financial status. Sometimes you hear, man, wouldn't it just be awesome if so-and-so got saved, what they could do for the Lord? And often, what are we looking at? We're looking at their talents, their abilities, their sphere of influence, and those kind of things. And God says, that's not why I chose you, Israel. I chose you because I'm going to get the glory and because I sovereignly chose you. He says, for you are the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your father. See, God made a promise to Abraham that he would raise through Abraham a great nation. There were times in the wilderness when God says, Moses, step aside, I'm going to destroy this people. And I'll start over and I'll make through your lineage, I'll, I'll, I'll make a nation. And Moses says, what will the heathen nation say? And Lord, you promised Abraham that you would raise up to him a mighty nation. God chose 
Israel, not based on their merits, not even based on their faithfulness to him, but because of his love. You know, folks, Paul's own testimony was that he was the chiefest of sinners. He was a blasphemer. Form a blasphemer. He was a former persecutor of the church of God. He delighted to see Christians to be tortured or to be martyred because he believed that those of the way were not true to God. And yet God, in his mercy and grace, saved God, saved Paul, not because Paul was a Hellenistic Jew with Hebraic training and was also a Roman citizen. No, although God in his infinite wisdom gave him all of that in preparation, but God chose to save Paul because God is love. And God has chosen you, and those of you watching by way of live stream, God has chosen you to hear the gospel. And he has chosen through his Holy Spirit to show you that he loves you, that Jesus Christ is the one who died on the cross and shed his blood, was buried and rose again so that you could have forgiveness of of sin and eternal life. And the Father is drawing those of you that have not yet trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. He's drawing you to his Son. But you must choose to call upon him and receive eternal life. But realize that God does not love you based on how good of a person you are or how impressive or unimpressive you are. Neither will he turn you away because of how wicked you have been. Jesus said, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise, I will in no way cast out. You see, the Lord's arm is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that he cannot hear. Folks, if God can save the cheapest of sinners, he can save you. And he loves you. You are not past his power and his grace. But Paul points out in verse 17, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and then exalted this people when they were strangers in the land of Egypt with a high army brought them out. The miraculous deliverance of God of his chosen people. And then God patiently preserved his people and was faithful to them even when they were not faithful to him. Look in verse 18. And about that time, 40 years, he suffered their manners in the wilderness. I love the way the King James translators put this. He suffered their manners. What were their manners like? pretty poor they were very rude do you remember how that moses sent joshua and caleb and 10 other spies to spy out the land of israel and when they come back joshua and caleb said this is great man this land flows with milk and honey uh and, and it's just an overflowing abundance of what god this is a great land god has given to us let's go in and take it god promised it to us and the other 10 spies said i don't know I mean, the walls of those cities reach up to the heavens and there are giants in the land. We look like grasshoppers. All they have to do is stand on us and squish us. We don't have a chance. And they discourage the heart of the people to where the people would not go in because of unbelief. Then Moses comes back with the word of the Lord and says, all right, because you... And by the way, Joshua and Caleb go in among the people while they are beginning to grieve and complain, while they are expressing and making the choice to reject God's plan in their unbelief. Joshua and Caleb go in amongst them and continue to plead with the people, trust in the God who never fails in His promise. Trust Him. Let's go. Believe on Him. Repent of this unbelief. Let's trust God. He's promised us this land. All of this is a fulfillment of God's promise to our forefathers. And the people made their final decision and they said, no, we reject God's way. We will not trust him. 
And then the next day they changed their mind and said, you know, I think we can do it. Come up with a game plan. They wouldn't trust Almighty God. They trusted to themselves. And Moses said, don't go. You'll be defeated. They went. They wouldn't listen to Moses. They were defeated. And they came back. And God says, all right, now you're going to wander around. Those of you who made this choice in unbelief, you are going to die in the desert, wandering around for 40 years. And the next generation I will raise up after you will trust me and will enter into the promised land. And yet it wasn't God faithful to preserve his people when they were unfaithful to him. And you know, in this, I find great hope because there are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are God's people. They have been chosen in Christ and they have chosen him to be their savior, that they have chosen to respond in disbelief, in unbelief, not following the commands and not believing in the promises of God. They've tried to handle things their own way, yet God has not abandoned them. And God is faithful. Maybe that's your case. Maybe there's an area in your, in your life in which you've not been willing to trust God with that. You've not been faithful to him in that area of your life. You've not trusted him. You've not responded in faith. And biblical faith always results in obedience. And maybe you've gotten yourself in a very difficult way. But you know what? God has not forsaken you. As he did not forsake his people Israel. And then God graciously blessed his people's conquest for the promised land. Look at verse 19. When, they, when he destroyed seven nations in the land uh, of Canaan, he divided their land unto them by lot. Graciously blessed his people's conquest. He, when Moses, the servant of the Lord, died, God raised up Joshua. The same Joshua who's one of the spies, he and Caleb, that said, Hey, listen, God's given us the promised land. Not, nobody else in, in Joshua and Caleb's generation we're allowed to enter the promised land. But Joshua and Caleb got to lead that next generation of Israelites into the promised land. And God gave them the victory. What miraculous power as God drove out their enemies before them. As God conquered their enemies and gave them the land that he had promised to them. And then God governed them through his judges in verse 20. After that, he gave them judges about the space of 450 years. Now, in, in, the, in, the, in the King James translation, it seems a little clunky. What's he talking about the 450 years? He's talking about they were 400 years in the land of Egypt in slavery. They came out of that and they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And then it was about 10 years. It was less than that. But he rounds it up to 10 years of conquest in the promised land. And, and I think that he, he adds that extra three years or so because it took them time to get there and get settled in and actually claim that and become permanent residents in the promised land. So about 450 years. And then they are settled in the promised land. Remember that it was a theocracy. They were ruled and led by God and by God's appointed leaders. And so then he gave them judges up until Samuel. And then what did they want? They wanted a king, and God gave them a king. Look at verse 21. Afterward, they desired a king, and he gave unto them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. God gave him a king. Did, get, did God want to give them a king? Was that God's plan for them? No, but that's what they wanted. By the way, why did they want a king? They wanted to be like the nations around them. Why is it so often that God's people compromise living like holy, distinct people of God? Willing for other people to notice and say, you don't live life like the rest of us do. 
because we want to be like those around us. That's what Israel did. They wanted a king so they could be like the nations around them. They had God and God's appointed leaders to rule over them. And yet they wanted a king. So God gave them Saul. But I want to tell you this, though. God's sovereign plan is never thwarted by man's sin. Something that we can never understand and fully comprehend that we accept by faith is that God is sovereign, but he's given man a free will. And yet man's free will moves within the realm of God's sovereignty and God's plan is never thwarted even by man's sin. And God replaced a rebellious king with one after his own heart. Verse 22, And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who shall fulfill all my will. What was the difference between Saul and David? Was David perfect? By no means. We know that there were, there were times when, when David either did not discipline his children and because of that, they were rebellious towards God and caused great harm and difficulty and brought shame to the name of God in Israel and David's own sins himself. But the difference between Saul and David is that when Saul was confronted, he did not repent. He made excuses. He blamed others. But he did not have a repentant, contrite heart. But David, when he was confronted by the prophet of God, had a contrite Humble, broken heart. He repented. And after one such repentance, after great evil that he had committed, he wrote Psalm 51. And even in there, he writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. And then he prays, restore unto me the joy of my sal thy salvation. Renew a right spirit in me. Could it be there's a brother or sister in Christ today that needs to have a broken and a contrite heart before the Lord in something and needs to respond? David did. And because David was a man after God's own heart and he was not going to allow anything to forfeit his relationship with God, he was willing to humble himself and repent and acknowledge when he was wrong and he wanted God to change him. God chose him and said, I will give you one on the throne forever. And then Paul identifies Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise of the Messiah. Look in verse 23. Of this man, David's seed, hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. I'm going to stop and park on this for a little bit. See, in Matthew, Matthew relates this in Matthew 1, 20 uh, to 23. But while he, this is Joseph, thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David... Did you catch that? Joseph, though he was not the physical father of Jesus, because he was virgin born, the Holy Spirit placed him in Mary's womb, yet Joseph was his, you want to put it this way, adopted father in that sense. Okay? The son of David. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, which is conceived for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost and she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins now listen to this now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the prophet by the word of the Lord saying behold a virgin shall be with child shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us so he identifies this 
Paul also identifies Jesus as David's descendant foretold. See, Jesus is the heart of the apostolic message. Paul's aim was to proclaim him as the Savior. Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, starts off his gospel that Jesus is the, that the son of David. Right there in the very beginning in, in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And then Matthew recounts the whole lineage of Jesus all the way up from, from, all the way up to, from Abraham to David to Christ. The evidence, there was evidence that the Jews knew that Messiah would be David's descendant. And that's related in the story of the crowd at Christ's triumphal entry. In Matthew 21, verses 9 and 11, the Bible says, And the multitude that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And verse 11 says, when people asked, who is this? And the multitude said, multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. No mistake, Jesus of Nazareth is Messiah. He is the son of David. Paul reminds them then also that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Messiah, declared Jesus to be the Messiah. Look at verses 24 and 25. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. But behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. In John chapter 1, verses 29 to 33. The Bible says that as Jesus came the next day after he had been baptized of John the Baptist in the Jordan River, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. First, John the Baptist or Jesus? They were cousins, by the way. John the Baptist was born first. Remember, when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, she's already six months pregnant, right? Okay? And Mary had just found out that that which was in her was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And yet John the Baptist said that he was before me. How is that? Because Jesus is eternal God. That's what John the Baptist is saying. This is Messiah. This is Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament foretold that there would be a, a forerunner of Messiah after the spirit of Joshua, and John the Baptist fits that prophecy to a T. And he goes on and he says, And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore I am come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode him, and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist is saying, Before this, Jesus is my cousin, and I knew him, but I did not recognize fully that he is the Son of God, Messiah. But now I recognize and proclaim it. This repentance that I have been preaching is a repentance that there needs to be a change of heart and mind, not only over your sin, but of receiving the coming Messiah. What a privilege John the Baptist had to be that forerunner. And he reminds them. And this again, this is Paul reminding them, listen, God is the one who chose Israel, made of them a nation, put up with their unbelief, their disbelief. Their, their, how many times did they accuse God of wanting, plotting to kill them in the wilderness? Remember? And all the things that they said and the way that responded, how patient God was with them. 
And then God graciously gave them victory in the promised land and gave them men to lead them until Samuel the prophet. And even when they rebelliously did not want God to rule over them anymore, they wanted a king so they could be like the other nations. God's plan was not thwarted by their sinful unbelief. And God gave them Saul and Saul did not choose to be repentant and pliable under God. And so God raised up David, a man after his own heart. And through David promised the Messiah. And Jesus Christ is that son of David, the son of God. And John the Baptist bear witness of that. All of these things would have been familiar to the Jews and the god at the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. So what is the application as we close the message this morning because we still have another half and there's not time to preach the other half of this message this morning. Well, first of all, we know that there is a difficult journey. Do we not? That serving God is not always easy. That there are sometimes there are tough, tough trips for us to take. Sometimes there are obstacles. Sometimes there is spiritual opposition. Sometimes we face physical limitations and setbacks. Sometimes those who are serving with us fall away and make our burden that we are carrying so much greater because they let go of their end of the burden and the responsibility. Just like John Mark abandoned the company. You know, we, the choir started off this morning by singing, We Are the People of the Way. I want to read to you a poem. My dad has often quoted this. I want to make sure I get it verbatim. But it's called, The Road is Too Rough. Remember, we are people of the way. Let this encourage your heart this morning. That no matter how difficult the road may get, no matter the sacrifices you may make to serve the Lord and reach others with the gospel, every sacrifice we make for the kingdom of God is an eternal investment. The road is too rough, I said, dear Lord. There are stones that hurt me so. And he said, dear child, I understand. I walked it long ago. But there's a cool green path, I said. Let me go there for a while. No, child, he gently answered me. The green path does not climb. My burden, I said, is far too great. How can I bear it so? My child, he said, I remember the weight. I carried my cross, you know. But I said, I wish there were friends with me who could make my way their own. Oh, yes, he said. Gethsemane was hard to bear alone. And so I climbed the stony path, content at last to know where my Savior had not gone. I would not need to go. And strangely, then I found new friends, and the burden grew less sore. And I remember long ago, he went that way before. God never promised us an easy path. He never promised there would not be trials and setbacks. But we, like Paul, when we learn to lean on God, receive the supernatural grace of God, so that we, like Paul, can testify, as he does in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when I am weak, then am I strong. You see, God must get the glory 
And oftentimes he allows us to struggle with trials, setbacks, weaknesses, and limitations. So that when people look at us, they can say there is no way they accomplish that. That must be the supernatural power of God. And it gives him the glory. And it gives credibility to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, don't let difficulties hinder you from serving God, from spreading the gospel. Transitions in your life, tough trips along the way, and trials are never greater than the power of God's grace. Take comfort and courage in God's sovereignty. Nothing can thwart the sovereignty of God. And get to Jesus. If you are not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've not yet put your faith in him, come to him today for salvation. If you're a believer, walk with him. Share the good news of our Savior with others. We who are saved are people of the way. May God give us the grace to walk worthy of our calling. Shall we bow our heads? This morning, we're not going to have a come forward invitation. I'm just going to have our musician come and play a couple of stanzas of an invitation song. But I would like you right now just to spend some time with the Lord and listen for the Spirit of God to speak to you in your heart and make application in your life. As our, as our musician now begins to play our hymn of invitation, now is your opportunity to respond just in your heart, just there at your seat, just quietly. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and you say, Pastor Todd, I come to realize God loves me. Jesus is the Son of God, the only way to be right with God and to have eternal life. Still got some questions about some things, but I am concerned about my soul. What should I do? Would you just pray right now and say, God, would you show me your truth? And I promise you that I will respond to it. Help me to understand give me courage to ask somebody who can help me. Father, we who are of the way would walk with you and follow the way of our Savior. Guide us by your Holy Spirit this week and even today through the word of God that we may walk in obedience. May we not be like Israel, though chosen in you, yet times when we respond in disobedience and unbelief, going our own way, going according to our own wisdom. Instead of relying upon you, thank you for your graciousness to us and thank you that you are always ready to restore us. If we will but confess, confess to you that we are wrong and repent and turn back to you and submit to you with a contrite heart. 
Lord, this message that, that Paul is preaching, the Holy Spirit is using in the hearts of these Jews and God-fearers at Antioch of Pisidia. Oh, what a wonderful work that you did there in that time. Lord, would you do a great work here in this time and in this place through your gospel. We thank you for the clear, the clear fulfilled prophecy of Messiah in the Lord Jesus Christ, which leaves us absolutely no doubt we have full confidence in Christ as our Savior, the promised one. Lord, may we walk the path, though it's rough, knowing that you are the author as well as the finisher of our faith. And the course that is laid before us has been designed for you, by you. And you will never lay a course that is too difficult for us to finish. And you are faithful. And through your Holy Spirit, you are with us. And through your grace, you will strengthen us May we realize every difficulty draws us close, can draw us closer to you and strengthen us. May we realize that every obstacle and every opposition and, and every uh, sacrifice that we make in order to be faithful to serve you is an investment in your eternal kingdom. May we indeed lay up treasure in heaven, not only through our financial giving, but also through faithful lives and faithful service. And for our dear friends that have not yet come to know you as their Savior, Father, in love, draw them to your Son. Holy Spirit, convince them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And may they soon be ready to repent and put their faith in Christ and receive eternal life. And may you receive the eternal glory through all of these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd remain seated, we are going to actually have a church vote this morning. If the Whites would come, Isaac and Brittany White, they met with me and some of our deacons last Sunday evening. And so I want to present them for church vote this morning.